our sermon. Today we are continuing our series in Colossians that we started last week. We're doing an expository sermon, which means or series, which means we're going through the book of Colossians passage by passage, and we're unpacking what Paul is saying to his original audience and what that has to do with us, how that applies to us as a congregation. And last week, as we introduced this, we talked a little bit about the background of the church in Colossae. As we go, we're going to learn more about what's going on with that church and why Paul is bringing up certain things to them. But for now, what we know is that they're in a relatively small town that is relatively unimportant and has continued to be considered so unimportant that they haven't even excavated the site. There is a mound, and underneath that mound is the ruins of Colossae, and no one has bothered to take a shovel to it because uh, it's just not that important of a town. But for Paul, this was a very important town. This is a very important church, even though at this point he had never been there. He did not found it. He didn't really know the people there, but he knew the person who founded that church, Epaphras. And we talked a bit about him preaching the gospel there last week. And he has heard about what's happening in the church in Colossae. He's heard about the kind of church they are and the good things they're doing. And he's also heard about the challenges that they are facing. And so he's written this letter to praise them for the things they're doing right and to prepare them for the challenges that they're facing so they can navigate it well. And so we're going to be going through this book, and we're going to be looking at what Paul has to say to this particular church, and then how we can learn from that as a congregation in the 21st century. Now, last week, we looked at the first eight verses of Colossians, and we found that to be a passage where Paul is complimenting, praising the church in Colossae for what they're doing right. And they're doing something, the thing they're doing right is pretty important. He calls them a a church that is bearing fruit for the gospel that they are part of the gospel bearing fruit all over the known world. And so they are doing things right. They are, they are headed in the right direction. They are producing what a church is supposed to produce, and that is, he calls it fruit. So what we did as we read the passage was we investigated how are they producing fruit and what exactly is producing fruit. And when we looked at the how, we discovered what Paul is saying in there is that, first of all, Epaphras preached the gospel. He announced to them that Jesus is king. And then some of the Colossians who heard that, they appreciated what it means to find out that Jesus is king of the universe and how that changes everything. And some of them decided that they wanted to give their allegiance to this new king, which is translated in our Bibles as putting their faith in Jesus. They gave him their allegiance And then because they were giving him their allegiance, they then also put their hope in the promises that he had made to them. And what that means is that they were actually living in a way that only makes sense if those promises are true. We talked about it like writing checks as if God had deposited eternity in their accounts. And so their hope was that it wouldn't bounce, right? That they had eternity in their accounts. And what did it look like for them to spend out of an eternal bank account? Well, the main thing that it looked like in this bearing fruit was that they loved each other. They loved each other in a way that would have been risky if their bank account was as small as we think most of ours are, right? If they didn't have God caring for them, giving them eternal life, then the ways they loved each other were risky, Because they were willing to give more than than they might want to keep for themselves. They were willing to be generous with their goods. They were willing to be generous with their time. They were willing to forgive. They were willing to bear with each other. They were willing to do all these things that don't make mathematical sense without Jesus. 
And this created this radical community of people who love each other the way Jesus loves us. And we discovered that that is actually the fruit that Paul was talking about. In the modern church, we often talk about the fruit being people becoming believers. And so the fruit of a church is how many people you've baptized. And the New Testament never uses the word fruit to refer to people. It always uses it to refer to behaviors. Now, we also talked about the fact that those behaviors are the, like, what, what does fruit do? Fruit carries a seed. And it, it actually, the, the job of fruit is to transmit a seed. And so through the behaviors of the church, the seed of the gospel is planted. But ultimately, what he's praising the church in Colossians for doing is bearing fruit in terms of the way they live, their character, their behavior. So now as we move into the next passage, Paul is going to pivot from praising them for the kind of church they have been to casting a vision for them of, the kind, of what he wants them to become, where he wants them to go, and what, he's, what his letter is going to be about in terms of how he, where he wants to guide them to. He's going to switch from being thankful for the kind of church they are to praying about the kind of church that they should be. He doesn't want them to rest on their laurels and say, hey, bore some fruit, check, now we'll just hang out until the end. Like now, here's where we're going. So I'll encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to have them open to Colossians chapter 1 as we go through this sermon. And uh, as I prepare to read the passage, I would invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. For this reason also... Since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So in this passage, Paul sets a goal. He sets a target for what the church is going to be. And in uh, true Paul fashion... It's not so much telling them where they need to go as it is praying to God to get them where they need to go because it's ultimately in the power of God that this happens, right? And so Paul has this good way of, of using prayers to guide the church. And so his prayer is overall, the, his goal for the church, the target that they're aiming for is that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's all. All he wants them to do is to lead lives that are worthy of the creator of the universe and to please this holy, righteous God. That's all. No big deal. Now, there is a lot of baggage in Christian history between Paul and us. 
a lot of different, a lot of things that have happened in history, and a lot of ways that we tend to think of things, and a lot of pictures of God. And one of the one of the pictures that we have of God that we often struggle to get rid of is this angry God with a scorecard who has these, this exact list of things that you're supposed to do and things you're not supposed to do, and he's keeping score. And if you rate high enough, he will be happy with you. And if you don't rate high enough, he will be angry with you. Thankfully, he's worked out this way where he can add some of Jesus' score into your side so that it'll work out in your favor. But he's still very, like, very stern watching everything. And if we have that picture of God, then we look at this, and that seems like a really discouraging target a really discouraging goal to be able to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God. But I want to give you a different picture of what that can look like because I believe Paul is drawing on a different picture. And we don't see it because we're reading the Bible in English and we are not, our, our, the Bible that you grew up with, maybe you grew up with the NIV in my generation, maybe you grew up with the King James or whatever, whatever you learned to recite John 3.16 in, right? But none of us learned to recite the Bible in the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek Bible that Paul used, the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament that he would have used. And, and we're also not reading Paul's letter in Greek, so none of us see this. Thankfully, commentators that I read do see this. There's a connection in the language that Paul is using. Specifically, I want us to key in on being filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Those are key words. Filled, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. Now, if we were part of the Greek-speaking culture that Paul is writing to, and we were among the people that knew the Old Testament really well, that would set off bells. That would be something we'd be familiar with because it's, those words are used multiple times in the Old Testament. And they're always used in the same context of building God's building. The tabernacle first, and then later the temple. And it has to do with the artists who do the artwork for the tabernacle and the temple. Here's the first place where it shows up. And it, it, it's basically saying the same thing each time. So I'll just read you the one. God says to Moses, look, I have appointed by name Bazalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every craft. These are words that are, descri- that you are used to describe the way God inspires this man, Bezalel, to not just build the tabernacle, right? God gives them the plans for the tabernacle, so many cubits by so many cubits, this is supposed to be made out of this material, this is supposed to be made out of this material. Like, they give the blueprints. This guy is responsible for taking the blueprints and making them beautiful. Anybody can measure a cubit. I think it's, well, we're not sure exactly what it is, but they knew. We think it's from your elbow to your fingertip. Anybody can do that. Not everybody can make it look good. And so, so God is enabling this particular person to make the tabernacle beautiful. So that it's not just another tent. It's God's tent. And later on, it's going to use the same words to describe the people who make the temple look beautiful. That God enables to make the temple look beautiful. So what Paul is drawing on when he talks about this passage, when he's saying this, um, that you be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, people are hearing you're supposed to be like the guy who made the tabernacle beautiful. It's not a matter of meticulously following rules. It's actually an artistry image that he's drawing. 
it's not, it's not a checklist. It's that intangible beauty that happens when people are inspired by the Spirit of God. And as you'll see as we go through, this is going to fit with what Paul's going to say throughout the passage. But what seems to be happening here is Paul is not talking about, I want you to do, check off enough boxes for God to be happy instead of angry. He's saying, I want you to be able to lead a life that honors and pleases God. Not pleasing in the sense that God is hard to please, but pleasing in the sense that, that, that you're going to make him happy. He is going to enjoy the life that you lead. He's going to enjoy the person that you are. You're going to please him. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be like decoration in his kingdom. That's the kind of life that I want you to be able to lead. Now, let's be honest. That doesn't actually seem like any easier than the whole checklist thing was, right? <laughs> if only we were given steps if only we were told what it would look like to get there. Maybe, maybe Paul could have given us four things to get us there. Turns out he actually does. And in the grammar of the rest of the sentence, it breaks down into four things that are part of this prayer. Four things that Paul prays for them so that they will be able to lead lives that will, be, uh, 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 that will please God, that will be beautiful to God. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Those are the four things, and it's in the grammar of the Greek, it's a list. Okay? So, let's look at those four things. These are the four things that Paul, it's not a checklist like, if you accomplish these four things, God is pleased. These are the four things that he is praying for them as part of this prayer. Again, the Bible is not a contract between us and God where we can say, I did check these boxes, therefore you have to like me, or anything like that. Our relationship with God is a relationship. God overlooks faults and mistakes, and he also celebrates victories, and then we have a relationship with God. But these are four prayers that Paul makes for them to be able to lead lives that praise God. And the first one is bearing fruit in every good work. Now, we spent the entire sermon last week talking about what it means to bear fruit. And I recounted it at the beginning of this sermon, that bearing fruit in this case, is, or in, in the New Testament, it is our behavior. It's the way we behave. And it's very clear in this passage because he says, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, here's a place where we get into baggage. And one of the most frustrating things for me, one of the most frustrating points of uh, contention in the church when you start talking about good works. Because as soon as you use the phrase good works, which Paul uses a ton, he actually uses it a lot, especially in Titus, uh, but he uses the phrase good works a lot. And as soon as you bring that up, and as soon as you start talking about how important they are, you get sucked into the debate about whether you have to do them to get saved. It's where we, it always gets pulled when you start talking about the importance of good works. And that frustrates me because it always makes it feel to me like we're trying to figure out the lowest possible denominator, like what's the least I have to do to get into heaven. And I don't think that's the right discussion for us to have. And, and sorting out the whole good works grace thing is not what we're here to do today in this sermon. So let me simply touch on, bring up a passage from uh, John where Jesus is going to talk about the importance of bearing fruit. And I'm just going to use this not to wade into the debate, but simply to lay out for you how, 
the question is, is it important to Jesus? I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Does Jesus care about us producing fruit? Does God care about us producing fruit? It's important. It matters. And we're going to come back to this in our last point, because what we should do with the fact that it matters is important. We're going to find a way to sidestep this whole, what's the minimum I have to do to get into heaven? Because I'm not saying that, I've been pushing it back against that whole checklist thing, right? Like that God has a checklist. So that's not what I'm saying. But when we get to point number four, we'll draw this back together to understand why, how it matters that God and Jesus both care about good works. But for now, they care. And pleasing God means bearing fruit in good works. Number two is growing in the knowledge of God. Now, this is something that has kind of fallen out of favor in the church in some ways in recent times. And a lot of times what we think is, you know, I'll become a Christian and then I know right from wrong. Right? I, can, I can wing it. We can figure it out. Right? And we don't, we don't actually spend a ton of time discipling people. And, and moving them through the next stage. And we don't necessarily prioritize as highly as we used to the knowledge of God. And the question is, how important is the knowledge of God? Part of what obscures our understanding of this is the fact that we live in a culture that is saturated in the message of the gospel and has been for a long time. And so we don't necessarily realize what we have learned as a culture from the Bible. Uh, not too long ago, I saw a comedian come across my uh, feed on YouTube, some, on some app, and he was doing this. I, I watched it because it was, um, he, was, he wrote a song that was like God talking to people. And I'm always curious what kind of pop culture figures are telling people about God. It's a good way to see what our culture says. And he's talking about one of the things that God says here is he's frustrated that people need him to write something down for them to believe it. And specifically, he says, you shouldn't need me to tell you that it's wrong to force yourself on someone. I should not need to tell you that. You should already know it, that that's just wrong. And now this is a comedian with, you know, who's just going off of what he experiences in the world. And what he doesn't realize is that when Jesus came, that wasn't considered wrong. 2,000 years ago, that behavior was not considered wrong as long as the person was ranked below you in society. Unless they belonged to someone that was your peer and then you had sinned against that person. But I read a, a book that I mentioned a few times over the last couple of years by a guy who's not a Christian who talks about how Christianity has transformed our culture. And he was talking about the Me Too movement and the reaction against Harvey Weinstein. And he said, here's the proof that everybody, whether they believe in Jesus or not, is a Christian in terms of their ethics. Because nobody heard about what Harvey Weinstein did and said, but what's wrong with that? Why can't you use power to get what you want? What's, what's the deal? 
The fact is that it is only because of the spread of the gospel that people have concluded, and we've all come to this understanding, that you shouldn't use power on people that way. And it seems obvious to us only because it's, it's so deeply part of our culture. But we did actually need God to tell us that. And there are so many things in our culture that we all agree, of course that's right, and it's actually because God told us so. And we think that we can just trust, well, I can just trust my conscience and wing it and I'll know how to lead the right kind of life. That's not actually how people are. And Paul specifically tells us in Romans, he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You don't naturally know what pleases God. I don't naturally know what pleases God. We have to be formed we have to be formed by scripture. We have to be formed by prayer. We have to be formed by opening scripture and praying with the church, with others, because you can also just sit with the Bible and yourself and make it say whatever you want. Learning to know God is essential to being able to lead a life that will actually please him. Because if you just do what you know, think, oh, I would like this, <laughs> you and God have very different instincts. And the Christian life is learning to be transformed so that our instincts and our conscience looks more like God's. But that is a long journey. So if we want to lead lives that please God, we need to know him. And that's why so much of what churches do involves education and study and groups. That's why we are launching our classes in the fall, and that's why we have small groups. And all these things that happen where we get together and we study scripture and we pray and we talk together, that is us getting to know God better. Now, the third, the third thing that Paul lists is being strengthened for patience and endurance. Now, you'll notice if you have your Bible open that I shortened that. Because what it actually says in verse 10, sorry, in verse 11, he talks about being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And that sounds awesome. Doesn't it? Doesn't it sound great to be strengthened with power according to God's glorious might? Man, I can really set some things straight, right? I can, I can fix some problems. I can straighten out people who are wrong. Man, I can do a lot with God's glorious might. That's what we want, right? We want to be superheroes with this power that God gives us. And that, it sounds like that's what he's saying. And then you finish the sentence and he says, so that you may have great endurance and patience. <sighs> Isn't that about the last thing you want to use God's glorious might for? Right? It's like being given like the fastest car ever made and being told to just to go get groceries like a mile down the road and that's all you're using it for. Like, oh, man. But that's what God gives us his might and his power for, for patience and endurance. Because if there's one thing that I would say every, our Western culture holds in common, every part of it, you can find people in the West that disagree on pretty much everything and anything you have your pick of whatever perspective you want. Just get online and Google whatever perspective you want to find. One thing we all have in common, we are all impatient. I want things to happen now. I want my Amazon packages tomorrow. I want to stream my movies today. 
It happens now. And that especially happens for us when we engage with our culture. Because impatience often comes from fear, from anxiety. And when we're afraid that things are out of our control, we want to get them back in control now. And so we get impatient and we get anxious. And one of the themes throughout the Bible is how often things go wrong because God's people got impatient and got anxious. And they tried to push God's plan faster than he wanted to do it. Very rarely do people want to do things slower than God. Usually they want to do things faster because impatience is such a common temptation for us because it comes from fear. If things aren't going by my timeline, then I don't have control over where they're going to go. So I need it to happen now. And as Christians, as we engage and are sucked into the culture wars, we're afraid of where the world is going or where our country is going or where our neighborhood is going. And we want to take control now. And we wanted things to change now. And so we think that we're doing God's will by, by using the power that he's given us to make things happen now. And that's not what God gave us that power for. The generation, the, the era that changed things the most in Western history would be the first 300 years of the church. And one of the most common themes in their preaching they didn't preach any, they didn't have any, they didn't write any books on evangelism. They didn't write any books on social activism, but they were constantly talking about patience. And in fact, one uh, church father uh, said that patience is the uniquely Christian virtue because it's the only virtue that nobody else was even claiming to have. And it is all over the New Testament. Romans, Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. When you go to a wedding, what's the first thing you hear about love? Love is patient. Love is kind. When you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self, uh, gentleness. In Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How often do churches get torn apart because we want to change things now or we want to do this thing now and we don't take the time to actually build consensus because we won't bear with each other? And oftentimes it's because we're afraid that if we don't do this thing now, then we'll lose our community as if God can be held back by anything. In James, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. God works slowly. And we're told uh, there's one reason that Scripture explicitly tells us, and I suspect another reason. The first reason that he works slowly is because he does not want to lose anyone. We're told that God is patient, Peter tells us, so that no one will be lost. So he takes his time so nobody's left behind. But the other reason is because change, I, this is my, my belief, okay? This is Matt talking. Change that happens quickly can be undone quickly. You can see this in our politics, right? One party takes control, and they make all the changes that they want, and then what happens in the next election cycle? 
The other side wins, and they start undoing as much of it as they can and doing their own stuff before it switches again. And all those quick changes are just as quick to change back. But deep change takes a long time. Cultural change takes a long time. There's a reason why, so there, why our religious status in America has changed so much, and yet our ethics are still rooted in the Bible. Because it takes a long time to get away from the, that deep of a change. And Jesus, I, I know I wrote this in a newsletter. I can't remember I've said it from up here, but it's worth saying again. Jesus tells us that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell a mountain to go into the sea, right? And that's a metaphor, right? That doesn't actually happen. Has anybody seen a mountain get thrown in the sea? Ah, I didn't do this before. Or more of you would raise your hands. Okay, anybody seen a mountain? Like, have you seen Mount Hood? Hey, then you have seen a mountain being thrown in the sea. Because every mountain is constantly being thrown into the sea. It's called erosion. Right? God sends the rain that wears down the rocks and carries it into the ocean, and literally every mountain is always being thrown into the sea. It's just happening on a different timeline than we want to see. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus had erosion in his mind when he said that, because it would be a long time before humans understood erosion. But the point still stands that God changes things, and his change is enduring and it lasts, but it, we don't see it sometimes because it's not happening the way we want. And that gets us off the path of leading lives that please God. But if we want to lead a life that pleases God, we have to trust in his way and work according to his timeline. And that means instead of impatiently trying to take control and make things happen now, we continue to live life the way God told us to and trust that that way will work. Now, everything that I've been talking about so far is really difficult. And it can still get us sucked back into that feeling of, man, I'm getting a list of things and obligations, and this sounds so hard. And that's why I'm really glad that Paul ended with this, because as the more I study this passage, the more I realize that the ending really pulls it all together. The last thing is joyfully giving thanks to the Father. All of this we do while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now, why do we joyfully give thanks to the Father? Well, Paul tells us in this passage, when we finish the reading, he says, joyfully give thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We give joyful thanks to God because, and connected with last week again, we appreciate what he's actually done. That he has taken us from this kingdom where we have nothing but darkness and death and sin and destruction waiting for us. And he has transferred us into a kingdom of hope, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of life. Everything changes because we have been saved by Jesus Christ. Everything changes. And what is the appropriate response when you realize the gravity of what Jesus has done for you? Joy and gratitude. Right? Joyful gratitude. And that joyful gratitude should be the motivator for everything else that we've been talking about. Because when we recognize what God has done without us earning it, we want to respond with gratitude to Him. And that gratitude should mean that we should want to lead the lives that please God, right? 
How ungrateful would it be for us to be transferred into the kingdom of light and say, yeah, but I'm still going to, I kind of like the way they do things in the kingdom of darkness, so I'm going to keep doing things that way. Right? Like how horribly, regardless of what gets us into the kingdom of light or whether we can stay, whether we can be kicked back, or any of those questions, how, do you want to be the person who gets pulled into the kingdom of light and then start, wants to keep doing things in the dark way? That's, that's horribly ungrateful. Right? That's not the kind of people we want to be if you've really received what Jesus has done for you. And so to me, that's how we get away from getting sucked into this whole, what do I have to do to earn my way to heaven? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how can we show our gratitude to the God who has saved us? How can we say thank you? What capacity do we have to to show gratitude for the unearned gift? Back in Romans 12, when right before Paul talks about being transformed to know the will of God, he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, keeping in mind how amazingly generous and forgiving God has been to you, all the good things God has done for you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is how you show God how worthy he is. This is how you say thank you. This is what God appreciates as a gift, is a life that pleases him. You know those people that are really hard to buy gifts for? What do you get for the person who has everything? What do you get for the God who has everything? You give him a life that is joyously grateful and that lives the way God wants us to live. We do that by bearing the kind of fruit God made us to bear. That's, what, that's the kind of people he wants us to be. We do that by getting to know God better so that we can know what it means to bear the kind of fruit that pleases him, right? Because you have to, you ever tried to get a present for somebody you just do not know? It's much harder than when you actually know the person. So as we get to know God and we get to know what pleases him, then we can know better how to show our gratitude to him. And we can develop that patience that is so important to keeping us in line with his plan so that we're not actually pulling things back in our own way while we're trying to serve God. All of these things are motivated by the fact that we are so incredibly grateful for what God has done for us that we want to say thank you in some way. It's a humble gift, surely. The best that we can manage in the power of the Spirit these, these lives that we have. But God is a good father and he loves the gifts of gratitude that his children offer. So this is Paul's prayer for the church and this is my, our prayer for this church that we would be people that are so joyously grateful for the way we have been saved by God that we want to lead lives that please him. And so we invest time in knowing what pleases him. And we dedicate ourselves to using the power he gives us for patience so that we can stick to what pleases God even when all of our instincts pull us away. Amen? So as we take what Paul has said to the Colossians and we apply it now to Turner, I have some questions for you to ask yourself. Number one, are you bearing fruit by doing good? And the, the primary way that that's applied in Colossians so far is loving God's people, 
or loving others. So when the New Testament writers talk about love, they talk about loving your family, loving your neighbor, and loving your congregation. And that's the kind of love that the early church used to change the world. Are you actually doing that? I would imagine that your answer is some form of yes, but... And, and as you think about that, you see the places where that could be changed. As God brings those to your mind, I, I don't let go of them. Because in our gratitude to God, we should want to address those. Number two, are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you spending time getting to know God better? Getting to know what he wants? Actually forming your conscience and your instincts so that they follow what God has said rather than what culture and your, your upbringing and your life has taught you to seek. Because we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian now, I'll wing it, and think that we're, that leads us to God's direction. That will lead you to your own direction. Question number three is, are you developing Patience. This will be the most countercultural thing you can possibly do. It will also be the thing that goes the most against your own impulses and instincts. Do not pray for God to teach you patience. I can't even imagine what the answer to that prayer will look like. Probably a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an 11-month-old. <laughs> but we need to learn patience if we're going to be able to hold to God's will. Because God is patient. And his patience is a good thing. It's his patience that has given us time to find him. And finally, are you joyful and grateful? I don't want to put this on you as some kind of, uh, um, um, what's the word? Obligation, like, you better be happy. But if you're not approaching this in a spirit of joy and gratitude, then maybe the work that you need to do is to figure out why and work to recover that understanding, that appreciation of what it is that God has really done for you. Because that might actually be the root of it. You might say, you know what? I've, I've been in Sunday school since the day after I was born, and it just isn't sticking. I know the thing. I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I just don't do it. That might be the heart problem that you need to... Invest time in working out and recovering that joy and that gratitude that motivates all of this. Now, I don't know what God may bring up in your heart as you answer those questions, but I can tell you that this church exists as a congregation of people to move further in our discipleship and our following of Jesus Christ. And so if you have not given your life to Jesus and that's where you need to start, today is the best day to do that, and we would love to walk you through that. And you can come up and talk to me or Pastor Rachel, or you can fill that out in one of the red cards in the seat back in front of you. If you're online, you can contact us uh, through our website, or you can talk to a Christian that you know and trust, and we would love to walk you through that step. Maybe you need to get baptized, which is the glorious moment that we have of experiencing being brought into Christ. Maybe you're looking, you realize that you need to know God better and you need opportunities to grow and that's what our classes are for. And so you can use that sheet that's in your bulletin to sign up for one of our classes starting in September. You can use the green card in the seat back in front of you if you'd like to join one of our small groups or just to let us know you want to take that next step and we'll walk you through that. And finally, if you're looking for ways to love others, to serve, to give to others, 
We have a lot of ways that you can do that, whether it's serving in the nursery or serving in the food bank or helping take down chain leak fence or all kinds of things that can be done to serve others. And that's what the blue card is for. You can fill that out, drop any of the car those cards in the back and we'd love to follow up with you. Maybe what you're doing doesn't fit on a card. Whatever it is, whatever God is placing on your heart, I would encourage you to hold on to that and commit to it and hold that in your heart as we stand and sing our final song. Please join me uh, as we prepare for the final song.